Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives Phil Shin is in the house And what a legend this man is if you don't know the name Phil Shin, well, first of all, you may, because what month, month and a half ago, a uh, very short time ago, I think it was episode 179, he was on the Morning Shakeout podcast with Mario Fraioli, and it was an epic episode. It was over two hours long, the longest episode Mario has ever done with any guest. And Mario is a legend in this space and in so many others. And uh, it was a fantastic episode. And I couldn't wait to get Phil on the podcast to talk about what he's done since the airing of that episode and to follow up on some topics that him and Mario did cover. So that was kind of a, a you know, it's two different podcasts completely, but that was kind of like the first episode is like the second episode in a little mini series. Uh, if I could be so bold, I love Mario. He's an awesome guy. And like I said, you really got to go listen to that episode. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Phil had a, uh, a liver transplant. So a, a live living liver transplant with his one of his best friends. And it's an inspiring story. It truly is. And in the two to two and a half years, since that operation, Phil has done some incredible things, uh, as has Mark, his his donor and very good friend. And they just ran Boston. Uh, Phil has some big time goals. He also ran the way too cool 50K uh, a month ago. He's doing amazing things. And he's just an absolutely incredible person. He's also on the board of the Brave Like Gabe Foundation. So, I mean, is there a better guy than Phil Shin? I don't know. If there is, no, there isn't. Maybe some people are tied with Phil. Maybe some very, very high-level people are tied with Phil for best people in the world, but no one's better. This guy's the man, and I was so honored to have him on the show. So let's get into it with Phil Shin. All right, Phil Shin is on the show. Phil, can I just say thank you for your patience, because there has never been a guest in the history of the Rambling Runner podcast whose recording sessions have been moved as many times as yours have. So thank you so much for finally doing this and putting up with me for so many months. Thank you so much. Oh, no, it's a pleasure, man. I I, I love the fact that, you know, you I, I love moving targets, right? So <laughs> the fact that you kept moving around and not all of it your fault, I mean, the Scheduling can be difficult, especially when you have little ones. Uh, my, you know, my kid, he's not as little, but he plays a lot of baseball and there's certainly some scheduling uh, challenges there. So I'm, I'm totally used to it. So thanks for your flexibility also. Oh, for... It's all good, man. I'll tell you that the last one was funny because we were like, all right, this is, it's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to have Phil on. People have been recommending Phil to be on the show for months. I'm going to do it. This is, this is the day. I woke up that day, pick up my phone from my side table next to my bed. And every morning I see notifications of which podcast have been uploaded over the course of the night and I see morning shakeout Phil Shin two hours and 17 minutes like I can't can't have Phil on today he just downloaded with Mario this is going to be great I can't wait to listen to this so you and I were like all right here's the deal (laughs) Mark the whole backstory of Phil's amazing story is on the morning shakeout podcast and everybody should go listen to it we are not going to rehash that full podcast because first of all it's perfect and redoing it wouldn't make any sense. So it's episode 197 of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Go listen to that episode. It's really, really good. In addition, 
We're not going to redo that. Like I said, we are going to touch on a couple of things. And people who've listened to the intro already know some basic points uh, of your story. So I just want to touch on a couple of things because there's some things that you talked about with Mario that I think a lot of people can relate to, even if they haven't gone through some of the experiences that you've gone through. And I think one of the first ones that came to mind for me, Phil, was the difficult relationship that you had with running once you start to like once once the Boston Marathon started to like appear on the horizon, you hired a coach. All right, Boston's going to be the goal, right? All of a sudden, you really adopted the "I am a runner" mantra. At that point, obviously, anyone who runs is a runner. But you you talked to Mario about, about that, about embracing that, and all of a sudden, in that moment, that is when you kind of lost the love a little bit for running. Could you could you go into that a little bit more? Because I think I think that is a a, a a concept that a lot of people have have felt before. Yeah, yeah. And thank you again, Matt, for uh, uh, bringing me on. Uh, I've been really looking forward to chatting with you. So um, yeah, it <laughs> really interesting journey. Um, I never really expected to have, um, you know, something as gargantuan as the Boston Marathon be a realistic goal for me, but I enjoyed running. I enjoyed running marathons and I just kind of found myself getting a little bit faster. And by a little bit, I, I mean like, you know, shaving five minutes off here, 10 minutes off there. But then all of a sudden I found myself being roughly about 20 minutes closer to that Boston qualifying time. And my training uh, for the marathons I had run to that point was literally just taking two months to just clear out my weekends to do a long run. <laughs> that, that was really it, right? But then I did start getting better. So I said, well, you know, maybe if I start doing like these workouts, like these fartlek things and, you know, these yasas, I mean, whatever they are, I mean, if I get some prescriptive training, then maybe I can actually make this a reality. And before I decided to hire a coach, I think the first thing I did is I look, I need to call myself a runner finally, right? So up until that point, by then I, I would have, I, I think I had at least 10 marathons under my belt. I still refused to acknowledge myself as a runner because as soon as I finished that marathon, then I'd go back to just some terrible dietary and sedentary habits, right? Because I, I didn't have to run them. Yeah. It, I, I almost used those marathons as, you know, a, um, an excuse, right? As a badge to say, okay, now I can eat all the fried snacks that I want. So, right. It's like, it's that, like the running get out of jail free pass when it comes to dietary excess. Exactly. So, um, still a little bit guilty of that, I'll, I'll admit. But, uh, the, but now that all of a sudden, you know, I think you said it right. Uh, because Boston was kind of like on the horizon, right? I knew that it would still be far to get there, but I, I just kind of want to give myself a realistic chance at doing it. So before I hired that coach, I said, I need to proclaim myself a runner. So that's like the first thing I did. Okay, now as a runner, what do I need to do? Okay, I need to hire a coach. So I went in the internet and I found um, this guy who lived not too far from me. His name is Greg Braun, and he was a certified RRCA coach. He lived within five minutes of me. He had this really gnarly uh, uh, goatee beard. I said, that guy looks like a runner. So <clears throat> I hired him and uh, we hit it off right away. I told him my goals and it went, it went great. So uh, I was hitting all the workouts. I was, you know, I was you know, doing basically an entire marathon training block, you know, over the course of like four months. And 
I believe it was a Revel race that I was trying to run. I think it was like the Revel Canyon City. And I kind of put all my eggs in that basket to run that race. And as I was building up to run that race, I just noticed that I was just, I was really trying to like, I was really going through that attrition that a runner tends to go through when it comes to training, right? And I had to like force myself to get out of bed. I had to force myself to put on my running clothes. I had to force myself to put on my running shoes and then like literally like thrust myself out the door, you know, to get going. And was this, it, was this was general be- fatigue or was this just you didn't want to run? Uh, I think it started as general fatigue. Um, and I, I still don't know exactly what it was, but I, I, I just think that it was the trauma of all that running that I wasn't probably used to. Um, so I was packing on volume. I was packing on, you know, um, workouts that, you know, my body had not been used to. And, you know, I, and now as a runner, right, I was like, I, I'm supposed to feel this way, right? Uh, you know, I won't really pass the feedback to my coach saying, Hey, look, I, I don't feel too well right now. I was like, no, no, I did the work because I would still execute the workout. Right. But it would be a slog. Right. I'd hit the times and, you know, he'd see, you know, how I executed it on, you know, my Strava. But inside, I think I was really just kind of going through, you know, the, you know, just that war of attrition. Right. And I, my body was not enjoying it at all. So I I don't think I was being as kind to myself as I should have been. Right. And uh, because of that, I just kind of kept stacking on top of, you know, my misery. And it got to the point where when I got to the um, start line for that race, where I kind of put all those eggs in that basket, I it, right around mile 9, 10, 11, it just kind of fell apart for me. And I ended up running like my fastest half marathon and my slowest half marathon all in the same day. <laughs> so I remember like the, finishing that race, like, begging, you know, to uh, have, you know, um, a, a course marshal, you know, uh, uh, just drive me home. I was I was fully prepared to DNF my very first race, but there was nobody there because it was a small race. So I had to like literally like walk the last six miles. point to point, just, right? I mean, like you can't just, <laughs> you have to, you have to get to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. Roads are still closed, right? So there was no car that was going to take me home, right? Unless it was going to be an ambulance. So anyway, so after that race, and I think it was another race I had done. So I recovered from that, but then I wanted to reset and try again and completely blew up in the next race. That's when I just said, you know what, I need to just take a, I just need a timeout from, you know, from chasing Boston. And I think, you know, how I put it was, you know, I, I was like, really just trying to chase this. I was running against my own will. I, it was right around that time when I realized why the symbol of the Boston marathon is a unicorn, because the more you try and chase that unicorn, the harder it's going to be to catch, right? So I said, forget it. I'm done. I, I just need to take a break from this. I, I am not enjoying running at all. Um, I, I did enjoy it, you know, when I was running those previous marathons, but now it just got to the point where I just wasn't enjoying it. So I just, had a heart to heart with my coach and just say, Hey, look, I, I just need a timeout. I mean, I'll, I'll continue running, but I don't want anything to be, I don't want my, any of my running to be related to chasing, you know, that BQ. I just kind of want to fall back in love with running and, you know, just, just really just try to enjoy stepping out the door and just going for a run because I had lost that, you know, for quite a few months. So how often did you think about the Boston Marathon qualifying time? Uh, pretty much every day since I hired that coach, because I definitely 
found myself becoming quite type A about it, right? So, and that's all I thought about. So I was obsessed with, you know, my splits. I was obsessed with my heart rate, just all the data. <clears throat> and that's when I like, uh, I got the, you know, the Garmin and I, I was just diving deep into the weeds of my um, Garmin Connect um, uh, data. And it, it just wasn't very healthy. So so during that time, how were you handling – this is the part where, like, I think that the type A part of it can get tough is handling the – and these are arbitrary labels, but, like, the good days and the bad days. I know for me, when I get into that mode, I oftentimes will be the, – the, the hurt or the, the negative feelings around the bad days – are not even close to balance with the positive feelings on the good days. Like the hurt, the negative feelings drastically outweigh the positive feelings, right? It reminds me of like professional head coaches where like they don't celebrate wins, but they like, like, like bemoan losses. Like they mourn losses, but they don't even, but a win is just like, Hey, it was a win. It's like more of a relief. And they move on to the next thing right away. Like what was your experience with those two ends of the spectrum? Yes. Um, I don't think I experienced a whole lot of joy in either scenario. Um, even though I execute the workouts and I get good feedback, you know, from my coach, I would say that I wasn't really enjoying it. And, you know, I, I don't even think I've confessed this to him in this level of detail, but I, I just don't remember that. I, I want to say it was like an 18, 18 month block, right? Where I was training for those two races where it, I just, didn't find myself truly enjoying it. And I think another element, I appreciate you this question because it's really making me rewind and think back to some of the things that could have made it better. I didn't really have a running community around me. My community was just me and my coach. So I would do those long runs by myself. I would do those workouts by myself. So without, I mean, I, I, I was fine with, you know, the accountability aspect of it, just because I, I developed this type A personality to, you know, to, you know, to do those, do those runs. But there was an encouragement factor that probably wasn't there that I could have benefited from by just running with my friends and, you know, running with other like-minded people with common goals. So yeah, I, I definitely appreciate this question because I never really thought of it that way. So yeah, so thank you for that. Oh, no problem. And I think part of it, too, is it comes with a certain amount of success, right? Like you'd gotten to the point where, you know, achieving, you know, consistency as a runner or, you know, having a successful long run. Like, hey, I ran two hours today and I didn't I didn't have to, like, lay down for 12 hours afterwards, right? Like you had passed that threshold as a runner. So I feel like, and this has happened to me many, many times in various forms and for various activities where you have a certain level of success, all of a sudden your successes after that can be seen as like, oh, well, that's just the expectation. There was nothing special about that. That was just the expectation. So all of a sudden it minimizes the happiness or positive feelings that get potentially attached to it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you want that positive feedback, right? You want that loop, right? And I like when you're when you're doing a workout, right? Let's just say you're doing multiple uh, uh, intervals, right? 
you don't think about like the six intervals that you nailed, right? You think about the two that you missed and you missed by like three seconds or something, right? right. On God an 800 forbid, those three four... seconds as if they matter. Yeah, this, right, like, exactly. it's all you can think about is these meaningless three seconds. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't have somebody to give me, you know, put me in that positive feedback loop, you know, say, hey, no, you you actually crushed it, you know, in, in terms of like the whole workout, right? So, um, yeah. So, I, again, I, 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 this is really... Uh, uh, a helpful conversation because it it just makes me think about you know future conversations I might have with my runner friends when they start talking about you know some of the challenges that they might have trying to pursue uh, you know maybe a particular time goal so yeah and I loved how Mario talked about it with like he he used the set it and forget it um a phrase of like, hey, you set the big goal and then you forget about it, right? You set the big goal, I should say, and then you set up the, all right, this is what, these are the things I'm going to do to get the goal. And then you forget about the goal and you just focus on the process elements, right? I've heard people talk about like the zoom in, zoom out model and, and it all basically describes the same exact thing. And I love to juxtapose that with what happened for you in between basically um, the first time you got diagnosed with your liver cancer and then having your liver removed, right? So you had this period of time where six months or so where you ran four marathons in six months with cancer, right? This was was part of your your story. And, you know, comparing it to like that time where like all of a sudden, like for all you knew, you were perfectly healthy and you weren't able to enjoy your running. All of a sudden you were in a very, very different circumstance and then approaching running with gusto that I think it's hard for people to maybe put themselves in your shoes in that situation. When you think back to those two different um, periods in your life, how can you think about it just from a mental and emotional perspective of embracing running at a level and frequency that earlier in your life you just weren't able to do? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I appreciate this question too, Matt. It, it, it is interesting, right? Because when I, when I was diagnosed with cancer, ironically, that's when I was ready to reset and re-pursue that BQ, right? And the reason why is uh, after taking about six months off from uh, chasing that BQ, I actually re-ran the LA Marathon in 2018. And um, I actually ran that, you know, for charity. Uh, my uh, brother-in-law, he has Parkinson's disease, so I wanted to raise money to support him. So um, that just kind of reinvigorated my why, right? And uh, I'd never run for charity before, so to do that kind of like fuel injected my love for running, right? So, well, I can actually run for something now, right? That isn't, that doesn't have to do with a time goal, right? I, I, I can actually run for, you know, I, I, I can run for a purpose that has nothing to do with a finishing time. So once I did that, right, I was like, say, wow, I, I love, I really enjoy running again. I want to try this again, right? So right around that time, right, that's when I, I had gone in for some, uh, just, for an, uh, a physical screening, and uh, they uh, they saw that uh, there might be a tumor. So when I after I ran that race, I went in to visit with my doctor, and after a series of tests, they confirmed that I had liver cancer. So now with 
the liver cancer, especially after, you know, having that first surgery, it was more like, well, what do I got to lose, right? I have cancer. So let's just, you know, I I may as well just kind of go for things, you know, nothing's going to be more uncomfortable than what I'm going with, right? Than what I'm going through right now with this cancer. So why don't I just take it all out on running, right? And I don't know if that was like the magic sauce to get me to qualify for Boston because I ended up qualifying for Boston uh, three times in, I guess, um, nine months or something or 11 months. So including in those uh, in those uh, four marathons and six, I, I qualified for Boston twice more. But I think I was just so I was just in this mental state where I I had zero control of what was going on with me health wise. So all I can do is just offset that by putting everything into my running. So, um, and somehow I, I ended up getting faster and, uh, I never really thought about why that was. I just said, yeah, all I'm going to do is run. And, uh, I want to run these specific races because, you know, I, I want to, uh, I want to get these done before at some point, hopefully I'll get a liver transplant, but I may not. So I, the future is uncertain. So because of that, I'll just control what I can control and just run the hell out of these races. Uh, and it kind of worked out, I guess, right? And yet challenging days, challenging moments happen to every runner, right? No matter what else is going on in their life. And obviously you were going through a lot. So how were you approaching you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to approach a good day when everything's clicking and approach those days with a positive mindset. Sometimes, you know, those days happen because of the positive mindset. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you just have a great day and it can buoy your spirits. However, there are other days where the opposite happens. So how were you able to handle those days and not have them completely monopolize what's going on in your life? Because there was more important things that you had to deal with. And yet you still were doing a pretty wild running schedule. Yeah. Um, running was like my only outlet for coping, I guess. Right. Cause, um, waiting for a liver transplant, right. You, well, <clears throat> when you're training for a marathon or you're training for, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be running. Right. If you, if you, if there's a career path that you're chasing, right. Or if there's a plan that you have, you know, with your family, right everything's prescriptive, right? You have plans, right? Let's just say you want to buy a house, right? You know that you need to set money aside, right? There, there are things that you have to do, right? That you, you that you need to do, right? Well, with an organ transplant, that has, you have zero control, right? You have absolutely zero control, especially, you know, for a liver, which is a, which is, you know, a super high demand um, organ, right? So in, in terms of uh, uh, donation. So, because I had no idea where I was, it was just mentally taking a massive toll on me. And running was one aspect for me to essentially flush out that frustration. I wanted to flush it out with as much lactic acid as I could. Um, but when I wasn't running, because I mean, like I said, it's not like I can run for 18 hours a day and then go to bed, right? So, I still had to work, right? So I was still working, right? Because I was, I, I, I still, um, thankfully, had my health. I had my physical health, so I was still able to work. I was still able to be there for you know my wife and for my son. 
but mentally and especially emotionally, it was super challenging. I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't fully present because I kept thinking about all the plans that we had that I would not be able to fulfill because of the uncertainty of receiving a liver transplant. Yeah. So obviously you're, you're approaching your running with a very different, um, very different why as you had earlier in your life and, and the whole liver transplant story, you and Mario covered it. It's great. It's a great story. You should say, one of your best friends, Mark, was your liver donor, live liver donor, which is something that I know uh, we've had people who've messaged me before. Like, we would really appreciate you talk about live liver donors. So let's talk about it now, right? Your buddy, Mark, unbeknownst to you, <laughs> was, had been planning this for a while. And again, go back to Mario's episode with you uh, to talk all about it. Um, but talk to us now just about the importance of the live liver donor um, for someone like yourself. And then we'll talk about Boston because you, Mark, both you know, both ran Boston last weekend and, and what, what, what a scene that is. So let's just talk about that part first. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you uh, creating some space to allow me to talk about this. It's it, it's a you know it, it it's a health crisis, right? So, the statistics today currently indicate that a thousand people die every year waiting for a liver transplant, right? So, um, I think that works out to like one every. I, I don't want to get into the actual numbers, but I mean it's like four four a day, we'll say. So it's it's very very uh, I guess not it, it's just not common knowledge I guess when it comes to liver. So people have heard of you know kidney donations, people have heard of blood donations, people have heard of bone marrow donation, but the liver people say, I only have one liver right I I need it for myself I I you know I I'd love to donate it but I I need it but what people don't realize is that the liver actually regenerates it's the only organ in the body that regenerates right you're not going to see many live heart transplants right this is not this is not that situation exactly exactly so um so I didn't and I'll confess I didn't know this either so when I had my first surgery to remove a racquetball sized tumor from my liver they told me that they were that I wasn't going to have chemo they felt like surgically they could just they can knock out this cancer. So I said, okay, what does that mean? And they said, well, we're going to cut out a third of your liver. And I remember that really scaring me. I said, okay, well, you cut out a third of my liver. What is that going to do to me? You know, it, it, what's that going to do to my health uh, down the road? And then that's when they explained to me, no, the liver actually regenerates. So um, it'll grow back to full size and it'll function normally. So we said, okay, that's a no-brainer. Let's do this, right? Unfortunately for me, the cancer came back in that liver. And it, was, it stayed isolated in that liver. And then my surgeon shared the news with me that, you know, I could no longer have the surgery to just, you know, remove the tumors. Now I actually needed to remove the entire liver and replace it with uh, a new liver. At the time, I didn't know about live liver donation, so I just said, okay, what does this mean? Because we had no idea what transplant was. So they said that you know, you'll be placed on a list, but because of your health, and at this time I had just qualified for the Boston Marathon. It was like a month after I qualified for the Boston Marathon after I had that first surgery. They said, because of your health and your age and your fitness, you're probably looking at three years before you move up high enough on the list to receive a traditional liver transplant from a deceased donor. And that's where, you know, you have your driver's license, you have a little pink dot saying that you're an organ donor. And the reason why is 
Um, there is a basically a ranking system uh, with that uh, transplant list, right? And it's all based on the health of your liver and the health of, you know, the person who needs that liver. Um, usually the people that are very high on that list have a liver that's basically reached its final stages. And that person is very likely in the hospital, possibly even in ICU, just dying and waiting for that liver. So that the, those individuals will be, are the most in need and they would get it. And again, a thousand people die every year. So it's not, it's not uncommon for that person to not ever receive that liver. So because what made mine particularly um, complicated is because I had cancer in my liver, right? It's not like I had cirrhosis where the liver is just completely failing, right? It was a healthy liver, but I had cancer in it. And because the liver is a vascular organ, that cancer could spread anywhere in my body. It could spread to my chest. It could spread to my stomach. It's it spread to my bones. You know, cancer has no agenda. It'll go wherever it wants to go. So we needed to get this out of me as soon as possible. But the traditional path of waiting for a deceased donor, just based on my health, I was not going to get it. So this is when we were educated on the living donor option. And the living donor option, it's much like the same transplant process in, instead because the liver regenerates, I would actually just need to get a portion of someone's healthy liver, a large portion, 60% specifically, of someone's healthy liver, and then remove my cancerous liver, and then place the 60% of that liver in my, you know, in my cavity, and then it would grow to full size and function in me, and then the liver in the donor would just grow back to full size and function. So that's, I guess, the biology of it. And the way you just described it, it makes it sound like, oh, this doesn't sound like that big of a deal. What's the problem here? However, it's a big ask, right? If you're even comfortable making the ask, right? Some people are uncomfortable asking someone to support their marathon effort for $20. Never mind like, hey, can I have 60, 60% of your liver, please? Don't worry. Some of it will grow back. You'll be fine. Exactly. And um and I think a lot of it just has to do with lack of awareness. Um, like Mark, you know, my my donor, he had no idea that you could donate a portion of your liver and, you know, come out just fine, right? So um, I, I think there's still just a basic, you know, um, there, there, there's just basic education that's missing on this, right? And, you know, that's why uh, organizations like, the American Liver Foundation, the Chris Kluge Foundation, uh, they're doing, you know, their very best to try and elevate that awareness so that we can have more potential donors, you know, uh, step up and donate uh, and save someone's life, right? So, and, um, it, and it is a major surgery, right? Like, I don't want to make light of the fact like this is a major surgery and, and this is a this is a serious thing for someone to consider. And it's not like, hey, I got approached. It's a no brainer. Let's do it. Like there, there are factors that are that, do, that can make it a challenging, a challenging yes for people. Correct. Yeah. And again, it's not like you're asking to borrow someone's bike or, you know, 20 bucks. And and myself, right, I I get very uncomfortable just asking people to pay me back when I lend them money, right? You know, when, <laughs> it, 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 so you can imagine how difficult it was for me to ask this, right? But we needed to. So I basically outsourced that task to my sister to help craft an email and push it out, you know, herself. And I would just give her a list of people who I felt like 
would be interested candidates, right? So, um, so she pushed it out and we ended up getting 16, uh, people submit themselves as donor, which just completely blew my mind. I had no idea that that many people were willing to do something as life changing as this and essentially risk their own life. Um, yeah, so that's just still something that I can't really fully get my head around because I, I ask myself those same questions. I, if I were to be asked to be someone's owner, of course, naturally you're going to say, yes, I'm going to do it. But you start going through, cause it, it was a, it was an online questionnaire that they had to fill out, right? It's not like they just say, Hey, I'm in, you know, give me a call when, you know, you're ready to, you know, screen me. No, no, no. There, there is an exhaustive evaluation, um, question, online questionnaire that they have to fill out. And this is just like the first pass, right? Once you get through these, I'll say like, it, it was like a 20 minute, um, questionnaire, right? And it asks some pretty deep questions in terms of like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you, because the risks are the risks, right? You could die from something like this, right? Um, and then not just the physical uh, risks, but then there's also the mental and emotional risks, right? Cause they need to really, those will actually weigh heavier than the, than the physical ones because they want to remove any possibility that this donor might back out, right? Cause the donor has the right to back out even up to the point of surgery. Like they could roll in as they're prepping you for the transplant, the donor for the transplant, they will still ask you, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure? Right. So, and they have every right to back out even when. Right. I mean, I shoot, I can't even imagine like, you're like saying like, oh my God, this is wild. Like if someone was like, Hey, you sure you want to have your wisdom teeth out? I'd be like, no, actually, no, I'm not sure. Maybe we should give this <laughs> another, give this another, another week to think about this. Like I can imagine it's a, it's a trying situation for everyone involved. Right. And I remember Mark like telling me, it's like, he got, it got to the point where he got tired of them asking, will you stop asking me if I'm sure about doing this? I'm gonna, it has to be done. It's going to get done. So, you know, just bless his heart. So, um, yeah, so I, I hope I, I'm not sure if that fully answered your question, but that, that, that's the process. Right. And again, I, I think there's still a, a, a gross lack of awareness when it comes to, uh, living organ donation. Um, and that's why I've been, working so hard with, you know, the American Liver Foundation, a little bit with the Chris Klug Foundation and with the Brave Like Gay Foundation to just try and use my story to just create that elevated awareness, right? Uh, and hopefully, you know, someone will be asked, you know, hey, I'm, I need a liver transplant, right? And I'm not saying that they, they're going to go and do it, but at the very least, they, they have the knowledge now, right? Saying, okay, maybe not me, but I can at least share, you know, you know, share your story of, or share your need to people that I know and let them know, hey, you can actually donate a portion of your liver to save this person's life and be fine. Right. And if people know about the kidney, right? I think that's, you know, you have two kidneys, you can give one, you're going to live a pretty normal life after that. Like it may be completely normal. Like it might not change your life in, in, in any significant way. And I think that that story has been told and, and, and rightfully so. Um, and this is a little bit different story and the whole regeneration thing, it sounds like a sci-fi, you know, it sounds like a, a sci-fi uh, narrative, but it's a wild situation. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're able to tell this story. And I can see why so many people were advocating on your behalf to, uh, to come on the show. And that I don't even think you were aware of it. They were just like, you got to get Phil Shen on the show. This guy's <laughs> awesome. Um, and rightfully so. So 
Let's talk about the um, the recovery period, because not just because this is fascinating information, but also he, you've done a lot since you've had the surgery. And here's Mark running his first marathon like this is the recovery period, I think, is is an integral part of the story from every single angle. So uh, if you wouldn't mind just sharing yours and uh, also sharing Mark's, if you feel comfortable, just just to just to get the, the broad sketch of, of what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um this actually does tie back to like running and uh typically you know someone who receives a liver transplant right it, it it's it's someone who's gone through a long journey of liver disease right and you know when when you're on that journey by the time you actually get to the point where you receive a transplant you are not in good shape i mean you again typically especially if you're getting a traditional uh organ transplant a liver transplant you're on death's door Right. So, um, and, you know, I, I, I've seen these amazing people, uh, cause I'm, I'm on a transplant support group, you know, with, uh, 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 with my hospital Keck Medical Center of USC here in Los Angeles. And I see it every single day. And, you know, I see it from both sides of, you know, you know, both sides of the spectrum, right? In need and then, you know, post transplant. And, those in need, I, it, 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 it's just heartbreaking to see what they go through. And it's not like as soon as they receive that liver transplant, right? Yeah. I mean, they'll, you know, they are now on the path to recovery, but that path is going to take a long time to recover. I'm talking years. Um, for myself, um, because mine was through hepatitis that, um, uh, manifested into liver cancer. I did not have liver failure. I was running and I was running really, really well. Um, but because of my health and my fitness, Matt, I recovered from that transplant extremely fast. So, uh, typically, uh, the time frame is when you receive your liver transplant, you're probably going to be in the hospital between 10, we'll call it two to three weeks. I got out in six days and typically the, um, the donor, gets out about a week before the uh, recipient, right? Because, you know, they just had not yeah. just, I, it's not just, but they're they just had, taking it out versus putting it in. Exactly. So, um, um, so it's usually the case where the, the donor uh, gets discharged earlier. Well, Mark and I were discharged on the same day. So that was, that was so awesome that we got to be discharged the exact same day. So, we were both there for six days and it was beautiful that we got, you know, we got to leave the hospital on the exact same day. So I thought it would have been awesome if we could like been sitting on each other's lap on that wheelchair. <laughs> hey, we're both coming out. But no, I, I guess there are hospital rules that prevent you from doing that. So anyway, um, we, you should, you guys, we should got just, like, out. She got like one of those like extra wide wheelchairs and sat next to each other. Be like, no, we're just sharing a liver now. They actually can join us. Yeah. They, they, exactly. they messed up the surgery. Or what would have been really awesome, Matt, was if, <laughs> I don't know if you saw that cheesy Tom Cruise movie, Days of Thunder. There was that one of scene course. where, they, you know, he and his, uh, and his uh, rival, like, they both, like, on a car crash. And then they had to get, they got, they left the hospital today, but they got, they, like, raced in the wheelchairs, oh, yes. right? Like, it was a NASCAR yes. race. So, it would have been awesome if the two of us could, like, race out of the hospital together. Um, anyway, so, yeah, uh, because of my health and fitness, right, I, 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 I was discharged really quickly. So, and... Again, I, I wasn't the conventional liver transplant recipient, so I, I, I essentially broke the mold, right? So uh, when I 
was discharged, I was able to get moving pretty quickly. And there was really no playbook for, you know, liver transplant for a marathoner, right? They have the playbook for, you know, liver transplant recipient who had, you know, um, just, you know, some type of um, uh, immunocompromised uh, liver or, you know, just your traditional liver disease path, right? And that's a very long recovery. So when I got discharged, they encouraged me to get walking as soon as possible. Well, I was like almost ready to get running. <laughs> so um, usually that that liver transplant recipient, they're not taking their first steps for, you know, especially outside for the first, you know, month. I was probably outside in the first two weeks and I actually started running probably about a month to six weeks after I got discharged. And I credit all of that to my fitness from running. And when just just the surgery itself, obviously they're you know taking out your liver, inserting a part of a new liver, and then there's a regeneration process as well. But they're also cutting through your uh, ab muscles, correct? I mean, there's not just the liver that's recovering here. There's other elements of the surgery that also need to recover. Correct, correct. And that, that was actually the biggest challenge. So... They cut right through the your you know your abdominal cage right so they cut through every muscle they cut through your diaphragm and it it they it's just shredded and I had surgical staples and I had forty seven surgical staples to essentially sew me back up right so they had to like reload the staple gun exactly exactly <laughs> yeah so it it was it was gnarly it was gnarly and i remember just kind of like when they removed it I, I made a bet with the uh uh with the doctor saying how many staples there'd be right and i thought there'd be like 32 and then when cheat said no I, I, this looks like more like in the 40s and it was 40 i said wow that that's just nuts but it was it was it was gnarly so yeah that definitely made the recovery process extremely challenging when it comes to like running right but again running is like something that you know my my transplant team they they just had no knowledge of no history of so i was just kind of like creating a new playbook to to get back into running meanwhile mark is just recovering beautifully because you know, Mark wasn't a runner, really. I mean, he was healthy, right? But, you know, he's in his late 40s. I was in my late 40s. Our birthdays are actually exactly like a week apart. So, you know, we're old men. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, Mark wasn't a runner. So they actually, he was like the perfect match for me, right? In terms of, you know, blood type, age, you know, the size of the liver, because we, we, you know, we're basically the same size. But they encouraged him to just get in better shape, just you know, not to be my donor, but just to make sure that he'd be able to handle the surgery. So for, I would say about three months, he started running quite a bit. Uh, and again, the purpose of this was so that he can be confirmed as my donor. So what made that, what was really funny about this is that, you know, Mark didn't roll with runners. He didn't know any runners. So he only knew one runner and that runner was the person whose life he's trying to save. So he would text me for advice on running. And I just thought that was the weirdest thing. I said, dude, you don't run, but okay. And this was before you knew that he was possibly your donor. This was like a complete, a completely random text message. Yeah, yeah. But because he even said it, because, you know, he was, he was discouraged from, you know, uh, revealing himself as my donor. So he just, oh, no, I just, you know, I want to get in better shape. 
yada yada and i said no i'm stoked that you want to run here here try this you know and then i remember encouraging him to buy a garmin watch right uh and yeah so so it, he was doing all this just so that he can get in shape to handle the surgery and it worked right so because he got out of the hospital really quickly he got out in like six days also right and then he ended up he lives up in portland oregon i live down here in la he actually flew back home like three, four days after being discharged. So, um, yes, and I, I credit all of this to the health of, you know, just his physical health through running, right? And beautifully, he ended up carrying that love of running. I, <clears throat> I wouldn't say maybe it was a love, but he developed a love for running and he continued on and on. And we ended up running a half marathon together five months after our transplant. I actually went up to... Oregon in February of 2020 um, to run a half marathon with him because uh, just snuck it in. That was one of the last races. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why is because that um, it was on Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day uh, is actually uh, National Donor Day. So I was like, oh my, it, it, we have to do this. We have to run this. this. It's meant to be. Yeah. So it, it was fantastic. So. Um, but ever since then, and Mark's just been, I, I, he almost like committed himself to like running a half marathon race or distance every week. And now he, he you know, he's hooked up with, you know, uh, running clubs in Oregon. Yeah. He, he's friends with the owners of the Portland running company. So yeah, so he, he's all about it. And that's a great scene up there. There's a lot of great runners up in Portland. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, I was like, Road I was shocked. Like, like there's tra- you know, the, the trail running scene. Dylan Bowman is like the the head of the trail running scene up there. Just had the gorge up there. It's 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 truly a remarkable area. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, so he he's he's fully invested in running, and I absolutely love it. So in the back of my head, you know, I, I knew that I was eventually going to be able to run Boston, right? So but in the back of my head, I was like, God, how cool would it be if we could get like Mark to run Boston one day, right? Because, um. What he thought was really cool was that, okay, look, I, because I remember at the, I had qualified for Boston before that transplant, right? And my you know, goal was to like run Boston eventually. So Mark, you know, he knew that he wasn't fast enough to qualify for Boston. So he kind of joked that, hey, look, you know, I'll never run. What's really cool about this transplant is like, you know, a part of me is going to run the Boston Marathon. <laughs> I'll never get the chance, but hey, but kind of I, I am. Well, I said, well, no, let's see about trying to get you to run Boston. And that, it's what this past weekend was all about. I love that. So you qualify for Boston again in the fall. I love the qualifying for Boston at Boston Flex. That is that is some serious work by a serious runner. So congratulations on that for sure. And at the end of your podcast with Mario, which I'll reference again because it was so awesome, that's when you announced, hey, Mark and I are going to run Boston. Like we're we're doing it together, donor and donor recipient, and and even more so, uh, two very good friends that preceded um, the donation. But in that interim time, in the in pure Phil Shin embracing his running love and 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 just all things Stoke at this point, it seems like that's the path that you're going. Um, in the meantime, you ran Way Too Cool, which is one of the most popular ultra running events in the country. Uh, so talk to me about, you know, embracing the trail over the past few years. And not only that, like, you got Boston coming up. Is the April Boston that people have been waiting for. 
you're out there running an ultra marathon beforehand. Talk to me about the the whole embracing the trail side here and also, you know, really going full fledged, like we're just going to do all the things now. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this is where it's probably going to start coming out very quickly to your listeners and probably to you that I'm just not a very smart person. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> <laughs> well, they've, they've already it, it, heard the preceding 45 minutes. So I think they already know how smart you are. Phil. You're like, you're the more eloquent speaker on this podcast for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. And I, my poor coach, I mean, I, I'm like his worst nightmare. It just, Hey, I want to try this. I want to try this. And you know, let's drop a 50 K in the middle of a, you know, a marathon training block. And then, Oh, Hey, I want to help a friend, you know, BQ, you know, cause I ran CIM, uh, last December also. Right. So we, we knew all that our sites were set on, you know, trying to requalify for Boston at Boston, you know, this spring. Right. So, um, uh, but in the meantime, I committed myself to helping a friend qualify for BQ, you know, qualify for Boston at CIM, then I wanted to do way too cool. And then I wanted to help uh, another friend of mine, um, be, uh, not BQ, but a PR at uh, LA this past March. So I ended up in this Boston training block, I ended up running two road marathons and a 50K. And yeah, so I, I definitely made my coach uh, earn his money. And uh, yeah, so I, sorry, Adam, I, I really apologize for that. And uh, well, we should say who your coach is. He's, 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 he's doing enough here. We got to give him a shout out. Yeah, no, uh, my coach is Adam Fry. Uh, he is the husband of Ladia Alperson Junkins, uh, who is uh, a good friend of mine and also uh, a fellow board member of the Brave Life Gabe Foundation. Wait, yeah, and she was on the Free Trail Podcast today, right? She was. She was. And I definitely encourage all your listeners to just once they finish listening to this or just pause this one right now and just jump to the free trail because Ladia's just innate ability for making herself present and just inviting you to listen to her was just absolutely amazing. And I it I texted her right after she, after that podcast, just letting her know how much it like cleansed me, uh, you know, listening to her speak. So I still haven't met her physically in person. Ironically, I've met Adam twice because he's also the uh, head cross country coach and track and field coach for uh, uh, for a small school uh, up in Washington where they live. So he's actually come down here to LA for a couple of meets and I had an opportunity to run with him a few times. But yeah, so Adam Fry is my running coach. So uh, yeah. What a power I, I couple know. in the running community. That, right? that, those two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's also a member of the uh, Brooks uh, Trail uh, Pro Team. So yeah, so he's got some pretty, th that family in Snoqualmie, they, they definitely got some huge running chops. So I, I'm just grateful to be a part of their universe. So um, hopefully one day I'll be somewhat faster, at least for my age group, but we'll see. I don't well know. Um, <laughs> you, you're, you're pretty fast right now. That's for sure. Right. I mean, shoot, you just ran 347 at Boston last weekend after obviously putting in a ton of miles and a lot of race miles in the preceding weeks and months. 347 is, is a remarkable time on a tough course. Um, so let's talk about that weekend because obviously, you know, you put a lot of stock into it. You're running, getting Mark ready for it. It's, it's a huge event anyway. 
Um, what was just the energy for you um, just leading into the weekend and experiencing the energy of the weekend? I, and this is one of those topics I'm going to talk with a lot of people about um, because it just seemed from afar that this Boston Marathon weekend was just different, that it was just amped up 15 out of 10 uh, from an energy perspective. And it seemed like you could even tell that from afar. Yeah, I, I've never had the privilege of seeing like, you know, your baseline Boston Marathon weekend. Uh, my first Boston in person, because I actually did the 2020 virtual here locally, which was nice. Um, but the fall, I thought, okay, this will be like the real experience. But I, I, I could definitely feel like it was, I think Mario put it best, it was somewhat muted, right? So, I mean, you, you run the course, right? There's some crowd there, but it was definitely muted just because we were still very deep into this COVID world. So, but when I arrived this past Friday, just getting off the plane, you could just feel the buzz and uh, just just that energy. And just to back up a little, right? As important as this Boston was, I really wanted this entire weekend to be about celebrating Mark, not him running the Boston Marathon, not him finishing the Boston Marathon, just just celebrating Mark because I wanted I wanted all the stops pulled to really just elevate him and lift him up for what he's done, not only for me, but what he's honestly done for the transplant community, right? Um, I really wanted to say, hey, look, he is the golden boy of the live liver donation, right? Less than three years ago, this guy who'd never run a marathon before, right, donated 60% of his liver to save my life. And now he is running the Boston Marathon, right, as his very first marathon. So big deal, big, big deal. We need to celebrate this guy, right? So um, the American Liver Foundation, who we both ran for, I ran as a qualified runner, Mark ran as a charity runner. And, you know, he definitely achieved rock star status because he, he raised a lot of money. We raised a lot of money together. Um, and, you know, everybody on the team was excited to, you know, to welcome him to Boston, right? So, so it, you know, I, I even, you know, texted with Mario because Mario had, um, uh, he had an amateur uh, racer uh, round table like on Friday. I didn't come until Friday night, but Mark actually arrived a Thursday night. So I said, I said, Mark, you need to go to this. Uh, Mario's going to be there and, you know, let's just kick this off. You know, let, you know, you know, Mario's literally like, he's like, he's almost like, you know, the, the shepherd for, you know, marathon weekend. And it's like everybody gathers around him, right? They just, what they want to do what he wants to do. Right. So, so they got to spend a little bit of time together to say hi. So there was that. My family was there to welcome him also. So my sister and my brother, they were there. So they took him out. So it, it was just great. So the buzz was just massive. So then when I arrived on Friday, then I just kind of grabbed and said, Mark, we're going we're gonna to give you the full-fledged Boston experience. So I took him to the American Liver Foundation um, uh, uh, brunch celebration on Saturday. And, you know, the... Our story was the first one that they, you know, that they were, because there's a ton of great stories with the American Liver Foundation, um, Boston Marathon team. The American Liver Foundation was actually the very first charity, you know, for the BAA. Wow. So, yeah, they were the very first one. And that, that 
our charity was the first one that actually created the charity program for the BAA. So, so it, it there. There's I a mean, lot they, of history there. They're the OGs. Yeah, they, there's a ton of history there. So, um, so yeah, they they definitely were excited to see Mark and myself because we were. Then this is I, as far as I know, as far as the majors concerned, this has only been done once. Last year in New York, there was a another uh, liver donor, liver recipient. Um, that ran the New York City Marathon, but I mean, I, I love the New York Marathon. I've run it, but this is the Boston Marathon, right? So it's like we we really need to celebrate this and you know slam dunk this thing, right? So and it just and um, like you said, like it speaks to what's possible, right? Like Mark Mark is not living a lesser life post liver donation. He is doing all new physical challenges, right? Right, and he's doing them well. So. Um, yeah, so, so we, we went in and just had the massive celebration. Then right after we're done with that, then we go straight into the expo. And, you know, this was like the full scale expo. I remember the expo last year was literally just getting you in and getting you out as fast as possible. But this time, you know, they had all the vendors there, you know, you had the, you had the snake lines to, you know, to get to, you know, the cashiers and all that. So, I mean, it was like being in Vegas, right? There were no windows, right? You know, you, there were no clocks. So you were just kind of stuck there. So, um, still a little freaked out by it. Cause you know, I, as a liver transplant recipient, I'm heavily immunocompromised. So I definitely had my double mask going on, but still, you know, just, it, it was massive. I mean, it's it's just something that Mark would have never experienced, right? So, um, yeah. So we went we, we went through that. Then we had a big family dinner with my family, you know, just to continue to you know celebrate the weekend. And yeah, it just it just would not stop. And then on Sunday, um, we got to meet up with Carrie Tollefson, uh, who is also a fellow board member of the Brave Like Gabe Foundation with me. So she and I are friends, and she invited us to come down to the uh, Fan Fest where she was moderating uh, um, a panel of the five original uh, runners of the Boston Marathon, the first female runners of the Boston Marathon. Oh, so wow. she was moderating a panel with Catherine Switzer and the other four, you know, who officially ran the, the Boston Marathon. So we were waiting in the VIP tent area and, you know, I'm with Mark and, hey, look, there's Joan Benoit Samuelson. Oh, hey, look, <laughs> there's Boston Billy. Oh, hey, there's Ambie Bur So we just kind of like went all in and just just turned the dial up to 11 when it came to like all the Boston things for him. So probably hurt us a little bit just in terms of you know time on feet before the race but you know it's it's Boston. so worth I, it I, so worth it absolutely absolutely so yeah it it, it was great and, and the race itself and like i said I, I really wanted this to be about mark being celebrated you know everybody like came up to him and they wanted to you know, just they wanted to know him, right? They want to know, you know, and and really just like embrace the fact that he did something just so amazing. And I, I hope he really felt that because it really meant a, a lot to me that he did. And again, I wanted all this to happen even like just before the race because, you know, the race is the race and he's going to love it regardless, right? But I wanted him to go in with a heart that was just ready to explode from all the love that was coming his way. Well, you're definitely painting that picture. That's for sure, Phil. And I really appreciate you doing it. You know, the Boston Marathon is so special, and and so are you guys. I mean, it, it, it's a remarkable thing, uh, and it's it's truly is a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, two more questions before we get going. First one is, you're obviously 
not afraid to take on challenges. So what is what's next on the calendar? Uh, and what are some of the things that you're pondering? Because obviously, you're up for a lot of challenges, my man. Yeah, yeah. Again, just keep thinking about, you know, me trying to phrase this in a way that doesn't make me look like uh, a dumb person, but you know, I, I, that cat's out of the bag. So <laughs> we, we, we want to say, don't we? Say you are you. Uh, yeah, you you're well, you're I mean, someone who who embraces life. I, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I've really embraced the trail scene. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I really love trail running. I, I mean, living here, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't get onto the trail scene earlier, right? Now everybody's on the trails, but um, so running the way too cool 50K was just an amazing experience. And I I want that again. So um, I want to explore longer distances. I want to explore different terrains. So one of the things that I'm definitely um, uh, locking in on is uh, Black Canyon for next February. Ooh. Yeah. So I, that's another that's one historic that, race. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, but I'm going to give myself plenty of runway to, to train for that. Cause you know, I, 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 I definitely want to finish these races. Right. And, um, I want to honor Cause like you said, it's a historic race. I want to honor that race by finishing it. Right. So, uh, so to do that, I, I want to give myself, plenty of hot days here in california during the summer to train for it right so you can go out go over the hills of poway you go go a little southeast of you just go, go run in the desert yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly right so i could just go out to joshua tree right there and do, you go. yeah do you that all right sorts so. of things. i remember i spent i spent a month in august running out in poway it was like one hill after another i'm like i <laughs> i'm never doing this again this is the worst oh like, no yeah <laughs> So, yeah, no, I'm just looking forward to getting dirty for a while. Um, I don't really have any races committed for this year. I, I just feel like I, I was like, I feel like I've been on this two-year training cycle um, since uh, COVID hit, right? So um, I, I, my plan was all along to just kind of run Boston 2020 in April. But obviously, you know, everything just kind of like shifted far to the right. So, um so yeah, I I actually did have a chat with Adam yesterday to just kind of talk about what we want to do next, and uh, I just said, look, let's just take some time to recover because I um, because of all those races I was doing uh, this year, I ended up injuring myself uh, for Boston. So and again, it didn't matter. I, I I the time didn't matter, but I did have a goal of running with my training partner Jen, who I've been running with you know all through COVID. So she's like. She's my. How'd she do? She did great. Yeah, she ran in three twenty five, and you know she Go, Jen. she had some business to sell. Yeah, Jen was amazing. So uh, I, I hung with her uh, up until the first hill in Newton, and then my I developed bursitis and uh, Achilles tendonitis uh, in each uh, in each leg. So after we cleared that first hill, my bursitis says, "No, you're done, dude. <laughs> you're done." So then I just told. Jen, Jen, I'm done. You got to go. You got to go. And it was just the greatest. It was just the greatest feeling just to see her fade off and just plow through the next three hills. So and then she ended up just having herself a day. So, um, yeah, so I, it, it's Jen definitely, I want to. Uh, yes, Jen Lee. Exactly. So I am definitely looking forward to just staying kind to myself and just allow myself all the recovery that uh, I need before I 
get back up on the trails. I hear you. I had bursitis in my knee last year at this time. And yeah, I'll tell you what, man, like just doing strength work, it cleared it up so fast. It was funny. I spent all this time just resting and resting and resting. I just felt, felt completely out of shape. I lost everything. Hmm. And it still was bothering me a little bit. I'm like, I don't understand. Like it, at first it was misdiagnosed and ended up being bursitis. But then all of a sudden, like I incorporated like some strength exercises and it was like gone like that. It was like, honestly like three days later, I was like, oh, I don't, I'm running without pain. How weird. That's awesome. It was, yeah. it was wild. Yeah, mine's actually on the ball of my foot. So, yeah, and I actually did see a podiatrist and he said, you just need to stay off it, right? Oh, my so, gosh. Um, yeah, so, but he did, yeah, so by the time I, like, by the time I got back to the hotel, I took my shoe off. It, like, it looked like there was a ping pong ball lodged in the ball of my foot. Oh, so, my God, that's yeah, awful. It was, it was rough, but it's all good. All right, last thing before we get going. Um, you mentioned it a couple times. You're on the board of the Brave Lake Gabe Foundation. Um, your history with Gabe is a wonderful story. You detailed it very well with Mario. For people who don't know what Gabe Grunel's foundation has done or is doing, would you mind just enlightening people on, on what the what the work the foundation's doing? Oh yeah, uh, it, uh, thank you for again creating space to allow me to uh, talk about uh, the Brave Like Gabe Foundation. Um, yeah, the Brave Like Gabe Foundation was founded by. Uh, pro runner Gabe Grunewald, who passed away in 2019. And the purpose of the foundation is to support and raise and fundraise for uh, research for rare cancers, like the rare cancer that I had. Uh, and then also to empower runners to, or not runners, to empower people to um, overcome whatever diagnosis that they have through physical activity, whether it's running, walking, cycling. So those two pillars were just massive for me in my own journey, having a rare cancer and then also using running to empower myself to overcome those challenges, right? So um, I developed a virtual relationship with Gabe, when I listened to her podcast with Mario, uh, Mario had done a podcast episode in 2018 with Justin, uh, Gabe's husband, Justin, and, and Gabe. And I listened to that podcast right after I got the news that I had a recurrence of my cancer and that I would need a liver transplant. And that episode was... I mean, it was life-changing for me because that was the first time I I heard Gabe's voice. And in that conversation, I really felt like she was speaking to me directly. And almost she gave me like a call to action when it came to being more open about your diagnosis. Because at the time, right, I was uncertain about my future because I, I, I had cancer and I my only option was a liver transplant, and I did not know when that transplant would happen. I think Gabe was very certain that she didn't have a certain outlook ahead of her, right? Because it's rare cancer. There's no cure for it, right? So I, I immediately connected with her, and I, I think I told Mara, I almost felt like she marked on me through that podcast. So as soon as, you know, uh, I listened to that podcast, I sent her a direct message on Instagram and she responded immediately. Um, 
And I told her my story and she, she listened. Right. And, you know, I, you know, we didn't, we didn't really go deep into anything, but we, we knew who she knew who I was. And I, you know, we would encourage each other through, you know, our comments on posts and things. So, so over the course of the next, you know, six to eight months, you know, when her health was starting to decline, I just, I, I felt like I had a relationship with her, like a personal relationship with her. And I, she empowered me to like start being more open about my diagnosis. So I started posting somewhat regularly about what I was going through, right. You know, through my runs and and such. So then when we got into her final days, especially like when she put up her final posts, you know, from her hospital bed saying that she was going to miss, you know, her 5k, you know, the brave like gave 5k, which is the marquee event, you know, for the foundation. I sent her another message saying, Oh, Gabe, I'm so sorry that you're going to miss your events, but just letting you know that I'm going to run a 10k, you know, to make up for the 5k that you can't run. So, and because she was in the hospital, I wasn't really expecting a response, right? I just say, Hey, I just want you to read this and hopefully, you know, you'll pick it up. But she responded right away and she didn't respond just, Hey, thank you. Uh, great to hear from you. No, she responded, Hey, what's the latest with your liver donor situation? And that just blew me away. I just said, what, what are you doing asking me about my health situation? You're the one in the hospital right now. And it just moved me to tears that she would find it in herself to have enough strength to ask me about my situation. And even I mean, my situation wasn't positive by any means, and I didn't want to bring her down, but she insisted. She goes, no, tell me. I went, okay, I still have no idea what's going on. And, you know, I, I, I don't recall, you know, what, it's, it's even hard for me to look back and I refuse to even read it just because I, I mm-hmm. it just brings like so many painful memories. But, you know, so she ended up passing away, uh, you know, uh, about a month later and, um, uh, when she passed, I really felt like a part of me, well, I mean, it, it was taken away, right? Because I, I really kind of like clung to her as I was going through my own journey. So once she passed away, right, then I just kind of like really, I, I, I went into a really dark place, right? And it, it was, it, it was just unbelievably difficult for me to get motivated. And by then I just kind of like stopped running also. So, Fast forward to me getting my transplant, right? 2020 LA Marathon was coming up and I wanted to do something with this, right? To celebrate the fact that, okay, I'm running the LA Marathon six months post-transplant. Let's do something big here. So I was able to assemble a team of about 20 people to run with me. And we said, well, let's do this for something. What should we do this for? I said, well, let's do this for Brave Like Gabe, right? So... We created a fundraising page and we ended up raising $10,000 for the foundation collectively. And that's when I connected with Justin and asked Justin, Hey, we're doing this for you guys. Uh, I'd love to, you know, outfit the team in Brave Like Gabe gear. And, you know, Justin put me in touch with Gabe's friend, Sam, who was the um, executive director, you know, of the foundation at the time. And Sam and I connected immediately and, you know, she's, she set us up and we celebrated Gabe that entire day and it was amazing. Um, 
So a couple months after that, I was asked to join the board. And that was just a momentous day for me because, you know, this is, I'm just a guy that, you know, Gabe had never met. And all of a sudden, I'm now sitting on the board with her most meaningful relationships, you know, her, the most meaningful people in her life. And now I get to have these people be some of the most meaningful people in my life now. So I am a very, very proud member of this board. Um, I've made loads of lifelong friends. Uh, some of those names I've already mentioned in this, you know, in this conversation. And I'm so excited that we get to do these amazing things to continue to move Gabe's mission forward and to continue to have her voice be heard, right? We, I feel like we all speak Gabe's language and to be able to have all these opportunities like this podcast to amplify her voice is just the most meaningful thing uh, in the world to me. And I think I said it in Mario's podcast, Gabe really, I mean, she really flipped my purpose on its head. <laughs> I mean, I had, you know, plans like any traditional American does with when it comes to like family and career, but no, all that has, I've now need to insert this as a core element of the things that I want to do with the rest of my days, because, you know, I'm technically just about three years cancer free, but there's still no guarantees. Right. So I still need to view each day as, you know, one day forward um, that, you know, uh, that I need to get through to help continue to move my own personal missions forward. Well, Phil, this has been a just tremendous conversation and a real an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for everything you're doing for other people, for yourself, because uh, all of it is inspiring and making a difference uh, for those of us who knew you ahead of time and those of, you, those of us, I should say, who are learning about you now. Thank you for all of it. It really is making a huge difference. Thanks so much, Matt. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Gosh, this was just so enjoyable. Um, he's just truly one of a kind, and I couldn't be more thankful for him to come on the show. Thank you so much for listening. And hey, if you have time, rate and review the show as well and share it with a friend. It always uh, warms my heart when I see that. Thank you so much for listening, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.